We could just keep singing that song for about 30 minutes. That's the sermon in a nutshell. That's it right there. Uh, good morning, everybody. Good to see y'all. Glad to be in the house of the Lord with us today. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. If you're new around here, we want to welcome you again. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here at Strong Tower. We're glad you could be our guest today. You might have noticed in the announcements that we have starting point after service, which is just a 15-20 minute gathering right after service next door in the gym. Uh, just a time to get to know uh, people who are new around here, want to know more about our church. We'll go through a quick kind of introduction to who we are and then just get to meet you. So if you have some time afterwards, we'd love to Take 15 minutes, get to know you a little bit uh, before you head out for your day. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. If you're there, say amen. 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 Hear the reading of God's word. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word that it is life to our deadness. It is hope to our despair. Lord, your word is what we long for. Whether we know it or not, this is what we were designed for is to hear your very words. In fact, it's your words that created us out of the dust. It's your words that created the stars, the moon, the earth, everything that we see, the trees, the sea, the mountains, all of it, God, was by your word. And so we pray as we look at your word today that you would use that same power, the same creative power that made everything we see to change our hearts, to make us into the image of your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Peyton Manning is one of the most decorated, successful, retired quarterbacks in NFL history. Now, you may not like Peyton Manning. I'm not the biggest fan of Peyton Manning because he happened to beat Florida State, and we won't talk about that. But you cannot deny that Peyton Manning was one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. And so in 2011, when he underwent two neck surgeries and almost lost his career, it was not surprising that people were terrified. They were wondering, will he ever come back? Is this going to change everything? And so because he had these surgeries, you know, he went through a rehab process to try to regain his strength and everything. And one of the things that they had this NFL quarterback do was as soon as he got up and was able to move around a little bit, they had him take some darts and try to throw darts at a dartboard. Now remember, he is this, you know, masculine, you know, football NFL player, and he couldn't throw a dart all the way to the dartboard. Even the ones that got to the dartboard wouldn't stick on the dartboard. That's how bad his arm was. And so he was, he was depressed. He was despairing about it. He's like, am I ever going to play again? And so he calls up his old college football coach, 
uh, Coach Cutliffe. And he says, I need your help. I, I need to, to rehab. I need some help. And, and would you be willing? And so he comes and, and they begin to train in the middle of the night. This is how self-conscious Peyton Manning was about his, his abilities. He, he didn't want anyone else to see him because he was throwing the football so terribly. And so they started with the basics. They go back to how to hold a football, how to throw the football, how to make sure your arm motion is consistent, and all these different things. And day by day, week by week, they're practicing, they're training, they're going through it, and he gets to the point where he's able to actually go back and the team doesn't want him. He goes back and they cut him because they, they didn't trust that the whole process was good enough. And so he signs up with the Denver Broncos. And he comes back and at 38 years old breaks the touchdown record. All because he went back to the basics. See, going back to the basics was not a sign of weakness. It was actually a sign of wisdom. It was a sign of his wisdom to say, this is what I need in order to get to where I need to go. I need the basics. See, 500 years ago, there was a movement called the Reformation. You may be familiar with the term, or maybe you're not, but 500 years ago, there was a movement in the church called the Protestant Reformation, and it was a movement back to the basics. See, the church had gotten in such a corrupt state, things had gotten so bad that they were like Peyton Manning. They, they had to go all the way back to very simple things. Because the, the gospel had been lost, the, the worldliness that had crept into the church, the, the fact that the church had gone into, the, into bed with the state and was lusting for power and control and all these things that were happening. Martin Luther famously exposed many of these things in his 95 Theses where he posted on the door of the church, these are the things I see that need to change. And it was all about going back to the basics. It was the same thing 500 years ago that we see today where there was this crisis of authority, crisis of, of the culture, trying to figure out how are we supposed to be a faithful church in this faithless world. And so we're starting a new series today. We're calling it Solas because uh, that word is, has a historical meaning, historical significance where it, it's Latin for alone. And so in the Reformation, you know, it changed the world. 500 years ago, changed the world, changed the church. And, and really the issue at the core of the Reformation is often misunderstood. Usually people look at the Reformation and they see justification by faith as the core issue. And as, as significant and as essential as that is, that was not the real issue. Justification by faith was the issue that exposed the real deeper issue, which below the surface was all about authority. It was all about authority because the Catholic Church in the 16th century had this dual theory of authority where they believed that the church tradition and the scripture together were equal. And so the two uh, dual source of authority, these two things of tradition and scripture together interpreted God's will for the people. And so if they didn't agree with the scriptures, they would come back and look at tradition. And if they didn't agree with the tradition, they would come back and look at scripture. And the reformers came and they said, no, no, there's only one highest authority. It's scripture. And so this idea of scripture alone or sola scriptura is the idea that scripture is the first and final authority for the life of the church. 
What does that mean, though? Right? It sounds like a lot of theological jargon. It sounds like people fighting over minor things, but it will transform the way the church functions and the way us as believers live out our faith. And so I want to ask that question today for the next few minutes. What does it mean to have Scripture as our first and final authority? First, we're going to look at how Scripture or the Word of God speaks. And so if you're taking notes today, the first thing is the Word speaks. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16. It says this, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, Paul is writing this letter to his beloved disciple, Timothy. Right? And Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. If you ever read Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Timothy was the pastor of that church. And Timothy is young and, and he gets placed in this position where he was really in over his head. Right? Timothy didn't know what he was doing. He's overwhelmed by the corruption in the church. There's corruption inside the church. There's corruption outside the church. He doesn't know what to do. People are trying to figure out how are we going to be faithful. And Timothy, because he's young, he's afraid. And he's, he's tempted to back up in fear and not address the issues. Or he's tempted to move into the issues with pride and arrogance and speak as if he's you know, some kind of higher authority. And so Paul, his mentor, says to Timothy, lean in on the Scriptures. Let your, let your authority, let your, your power come from the scriptures. And so he uses this fascinating term to describe the inspiration of the scriptures. He says the scriptures are breathed out by God. It's actually one word in the Greek. It's God breathed. God breathed. Just one word. God breathed. And what he's saying is, is this profound mystery. He's saying that the scriptures are actually sourced by God himself. That their ultimate source is not the people who wrote them down, but the God who was inspiring that writing. Now, how does that work? That's full of all kinds of mystery. We don't have all the time to give a full treatment of the doctrine of Scripture here, but uh, we can give some basics. We see in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? Peter's giving two elements. He's saying men spoke, that there's this human language, and then God carried them along by His Holy Spirit. It's always two. It's, it's human language and God carrying along. And what's fascinating is what he's saying is it's not some kind of robotic inspiration. It's not like God took over their body and, and made their hand write in such a way that, that you know, they had no control, no influence over what was said. No, he, he somehow mysteriously, organically, very personally, very humanly works through their person. They work through the flawed character and personality and, and their culture. And so you see in the Bible, you see the different personalities come out in the different books because God was weaving these things together. And yet that mystery, theologian J.I. Packer, he, he tries to summarize it like this. He says, the mystery, or sorry, inspiration is comparable only to the deeper mystery of the incarnation. He says this, the Bible is both fully human and fully divine. Isn't that interesting? He's saying the Bible is both fully human 
and fully divine. So God is somehow working in this to make sure that every single word is inspired in such the way that he wants it to be, yet using the human personalities that he did. Now, what does God want to say through all of that? What what does God want to say? Well, here's the thing. God wants to, in the Bible, reveal himself to us. It's really that simple. And here's why that's so hard, is because often we think the main character of the Bible is us. Right? We sit down to read the Bible, or we're listening to a sermon, or we're listening to some Bible study or something, and we're, we're kind of putting it through the grid of, what does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with my finances that aren't working? What does this have to do with my kids that aren't working? What, what does this have to do with my marriage that isn't working? How, how can I apply this to my life? Because I'm the main character in the Bible. And God is inspiring the Bible in such a way that He wants you to know about Him. The main character of the Bible is not me, it's not you, it's God. It's God. And so God, in the Scriptures, He is revealing to us His grace for sinners, His passion for the poor, His commitment to mercy and justice, His love and healing for the broken, His care for the souls that are weary and tired, His his grace for those who've messed it up really bad. That's what He's revealing in the Bible because that's who He is. He's revealing His heart. And if God never spoke, you would never know Him. But he has. He's spoken in such a way that you would know him. See, my wife and I, we, uh, when we first got married and, and had our first kid, Zoe, uh, she, she came into our apartment that we had been living in for about a year. And, and it was, it was uh, a great apartment, but it had this one fatal flaw. This fatal flaw was that it had just one uh, AC unit, a wall unit that was in the living room. To, to cool down the whole apartment. Now, it, it was fine when you're in like January in Florida, but when it wraps around to July and it's 100 degrees out and, you know, 1,000% humidity or whatever it is, it was hot. We had three different temperatures, three different climates in our apartment. We had, uh, we had cold, we had warm, and then we had muggy. Like that was just, those were the three because it was situated in such a way that, that it would blow into the hallway from the living room. And I think they thought it would blow into the bedrooms and the bathroom by the time it got back there. But it died somewhere in the hallway. Somewhere in the hallway, the air never made it all the way back to the bedrooms. And so we had to set it up with fans to kind of push the air further down into the bedrooms. And it became this thing where depending on where you sat in the living room, you would either freeze or you would sweat. That was it. It, You just had to pick your position. And so if you were in the right position, it worked for you. But if you were beside it, it didn't work. If you were above it, it didn't work. If you were somewhere too close to it, it didn't work. But if you were just right, if you were just in front of it and just a little bit below it, it was perfect. It was all about position. Now listen, God's Word, when He speaks to us, it's all about position. It's all about position. It's all about where you put yourself in relation to His revelation if you're going to benefit from it. 
That's the way it works. And so what happens is we can't be like the AC unit. We can't be beside it. We can't be above it. We have to be under it. We have to be right under it to catch it. Because if we're beside it, this is what happens. We put ourselves beside God's word. Now all of a sudden we're in the position of negotiator. Where we can, we can negotiate with God. Oh, that, that sounds interesting, God, but I mean, I got these other voices in my life and they're saying this and this guy's saying that and, and my boss is saying this and my friend is saying this and, and God's voice is just one voice in a sea of voices. And so you're negotiating. Well, that sounds good, but I'm going to negotiate and see if maybe we can come around to this angle a little bit because we're equals. We're, we're self-declared equals. That's if you're beside it. If you position yourself above it, it gets even worse. Now you're not just a negotiator, sometimes agreeing, sometimes not. Now you're in the position of judge. And God's word is now below you And you get to decide what he says and if he said it. And it sounds a lot like the garden when Satan whispered to Adam and Eve, did he really say that? Does he really care about you? Is what he said best for you? And you put yourself in the position of judge. See, beside him or above him, it won't work. It has to be under, and there's this incredible beauty in being under, this profound beauty of being under God's Word. To be under the Word is simply and humbly to receive the Word, right? Rather than resist the Word, we receive the Word. Rather than critique the Word, we trust the Word. Rather than judge it, we rejoice in it because God is speaking. God. Think about that. That that book in front of you, that that is God speaking to you. Not me, God. Not you, God. Not anyone else, God. It's that position of coming under that makes your whole life turn around where it's no longer me-centered and what I think or what someone else thinks, but it's God-centered. And I've come under. And we finally get to hear. We finally get to listen what he wants, what he thinks, what he feels, because the Bible is more than a book with information. It is the heart of God delivered to you, revealing himself, revealing himself. So ask yourself, do, do you really know him? Like if the, if the point of the Bible is that you would know him, do you really know him? And I'm not asking, have you read the Bible cover to cover? I'm not asking, have you been in a Bible study? I'm not asking if you can quote John 3.16. I'm not asking if you've grown up in church. I'm asking, do you know the God of the Scriptures? Because it would be a terrible, terrible tragedy if through all of that you, you heard the words, but, but you never heard and, and knew the one who spoke them. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm revealing myself to you if you'll you'll come under and listen. Because you can spend your whole life around the Bible and you're just kind of beside it negotiating what you like and what you don't like. Or you can spend your whole life around the Bible and you're above it and you're, you're telling God what to do and what you like. But if you come under it, you'll know him. And when you do that, this is the second point, there's a huge benefit. And this is the second point, the word benefits. Look at the rest of 16. It says this, he goes on to say, the word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in 
righteousness. Now, Paul uses a second adjective here. In the first one, remember, it was just one word, God breathed. Now he, he changes it and he says not only is the word inspired and God breathed, it is profitable. And the word profitable means uh, useful, valuable, beneficial. This is my favorite, to give one an advantage. Right? That's what he's saying. The word is given to you to give you an advantage. In other words, God speaks in such a way that he speaks with power and purpose to make a difference in your life. That's the purpose of the scriptures. And he gives four ways that he does that right here. He says teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And now that's, that's not meant to be an exhaustive list. Obviously, the scriptures do way more than that. But Paul is kind of distilling it down to four things. And I believe he gives two things that are about exposure and two things that are about building. And so I'm just going to kind of walk through those words quickly, and then we're going to talk about what it means. But walking through the first word, reproof. Reproof is this word in the Greek that means to expose wrong belief or wrong thinking, right? So you, your thinking gets out of line, you're, you're influenced by people you follow on Instagram or some book you read or, or somebody who's in your family who's got some crazy stuff they're telling you, whatever. Your, your thinking gets offline, it gets off the gospel, it gets out of accord with the scripture. Scripture is meant to bring you back, to expose that. To say, hey, here's where your thinking is off about God and about how he works in his world. Reproof, right? And then there's another exposure that's not about your beliefs, and it's this word correction. It's actually about your behavior. So this is where your thinking has gone and, and your desires have now given birth to sin. All kinds of sinful behavior. It might be greed or impatience or ambition or violence or gossip or racism or whatever it may be. And then the word comes in and it speaks to your behavior and says, hey, did you, did you see this? Where you were blind, now you're able to see. Where you were ignorant, now you're able to know. It exposes what was happening in your life. But then it's more than just exposing the two words about building, right? First, it says that you are, it's teaching. And that's about your beliefs. Again, in reproof, it's, it's exposing your bad beliefs. But in teaching, it's giving you what is true. So it's not just exposing, it's building. And then on the opposite side, you have training. And training correlates with the correction. So where your, your behavior had gone wrong, it says you're being trained in righteousness. So it's, it's exposing and it's building. It's always both. Notice that, that the scripture is never doing uh, exposing without building. It's never belief without behavior. It's always this wholeness. That's what the Bible is about. It's about your wholeness. It's about your thriving. And so it brings these two together. It exposes, it builds, it's beliefs, it's behavior, it's your whole person. A couple years ago, uh, my dad called me and said he needed my truck to move some things from one house to another place. And, and uh, you know, when you have a truck, this is the kind of call you get. You get lots of calls. But my favorite is when I don't have to do anything. So he just wanted to borrow it. I didn't have to actually move anything. So I'm like, yeah, sure, we'll trade cars. I drive to my dad's house, drop off the car. We trade. I drive his car back to Lakeland. On the drive back, his car starts making funny noises. And I had the radio up, and I could still hear the noises. I'm like, what is that noise? It's been going on for like 10 minutes. And I turned down the radio, and I could hear this grinding. Every time I hit the accelerator, every time I slowed down, there's this grinding sound. So I call my dad on the way home, and I say, hey, 
Uh, don't want to call you this early about your car, but is there something wrong with it? Because it's making noises. And he said, no, it wasn't making noises before. What did you do? Yeah, that's, that's the accusation. What did I do? I said, I didn't do anything. I've been on the road 20 minutes. And uh, he said, all right, we'll take it to the house. And uh, if you can, take it in this afternoon and just see if a mechanic can look at it because it sounds pretty bad. So I took it in that afternoon. The mechanic looks at it. And uh, he, he kind of makes a couple faces. You know how the mechanics make you look like it's going to be terrible. And he's looking it over, drives it. He hears the sound, and then he gives me the diagnosis, and it's not cheap. He says, it's the transmission. And in order to fix the transmission, we're going to have to take it out, disassemble the whole transmission, find out what's causing the problem, and then put it all back together. And I don't know much about cars, and I know even less about transmissions. So I'm starting to ask questions like, what do you mean? This is the only option? You can't, like, tune it up or tighten it up or do something that'll make it better, easier, faster? No, this is the only option. You can't do one without the other. You can't put it back together unless you take it all apart. And you can't take it all apart and not put it back together. You have to have both. You have to have both. And see, this, this is what the Scripture does. The Scripture says to us, you, you have to have both. You, you can't just tear your life apart and then not put it back together, but you can't put your life back together without taking some things apart and looking yeah. at them. Yeah. And where we think it's a loss, it's really what the Bible's saying is profitable. Yeah. Yeah. It's beneficial. It's useful. It, it gives you an advantage. Right? That's what he's saying. It, but in our consumer culture, we... We want the easy fix. We want, the, we want to get out with $100 at max. We don't want to pay $2,000 for a transmission. We, we want to get out. Is there an easier, faster way? Is there something that, that we can do that's different? Yeah. And it's the same thing spiritually. We, we want to hide our sins. We want to do the easy things. I mean, we'll share a couple things, right? We'll share the things that everybody struggles with. Because it's not as vulnerable. But to share what's really going on. To share about our disdain for our spouse. To share about our fear of our, our, our faith being lost because we're doubting in so many different areas. To share about the depression that we've been wrestling with behind closed doors. To share about things that, that are really going on. To confess, to, to believe, to trust. It's hard. And we, we don't want to do that because that's that's too difficult. But God is, is giving a different definition of profit. He's saying to be profitable, there has to be life change. And there's two kinds of change that happen. The change first addresses our legalism, right? I mean, legalism is a way of life where you, you think everything's okay and everybody else thinks everything's okay and outwardly it looks great, but inwardly it's rotten. It's rotten. And so the scripture comes along in your life in a gracious, kind, beneficial, profitable way to say, hey, here is the rot that you're ignoring. Here's the problems that are happening in your heart, in your soul that maybe you weren't even aware of because you've just been ignoring them. And it's gracious in, in our legalism where we think we're all right for God to say, no, you're worse than you ever imagined. But it's also a different kind of transformation where it speaks not only to our legalism, but to our lawlessness, right? Where legalism says, everything's all right in my life and, and everything's great on the outside. Lawlessness is saying, okay, no, it's not all right, but I've kind of given up. 
My life is terrible. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. And, and I've just kind of given up on things getting better. And it's kind of this mask of false humility. Because on the outside, it looks as if you're humble, but really what's happening is you're hopeless. You've given up that God's Word can actually change anything in your life. You've given up that God's Word might actually give you hope to transform and to be different and to make progress. And so the Scripture comes along and speaks a word of life to you to say you're more loved than you ever dared imagine. And I love you so much that I will call you to holiness and I will give you the grace to pursue it. I will work in you by my very spirit. You hear that? So it speaks to both. It it takes it apart, shows us the problem, but it brings beauty out of that brokenness. And how does God bring beauty out of the brokenness? This is the last point the word saves. Look at verse 15. It says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, if you go back earlier in the letter, Timothy uh, is, is reminded that his faith came from his mother Eunice, and she got her faith from her mother Lois. And so you see this generation after generation after generation, and Paul says it wasn't through some extraordinary miracle, it was through the ordinary means of the Scriptures. He's saying this is how God worked. God worked in your family and God is working in you. And it wasn't the scriptures that saved them. And it wasn't the scriptures that's going to save you. But it's the scriptures that pointed towards the one who saves. Right. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. This is a key distinction. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying to you, to the Pharisees, he's saying, you saw all these wonderful things in the scriptures, but you missed me. And then the word comes alive in John chapter one. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about our imagination going back to creation and realizing that before everything was created, the Word of God was. But not only that, the Word was with God. But even better than that, the Word was God. And so you find out what he's talking about is not the Scriptures themselves, but the one who spoke the Scriptures. He's talking about a divine person, the God who spoke his greatest word in the person of Jesus Christ. The God who spoke His greatest word in human flesh, fully God, fully divine, Jesus. See, Jesus is flesh on grace and truth. Grace and truth coming alive in the person of God. That's that's who Jesus is. Jesus, the living word, moved into our neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson translated it. He's saying He moved into the company of sinners, moving into a place full of wrong beliefs, full of wrong behavior, minds twisted by evil, hearts heavy with guilt, hands dirty with shame. But he came seeking, as Jesus said, not the healthy, but the sick. The sick, those who were lonely, those who were tired, those who were afraid, those who were petty and foolish, proud, defensive, ignorant, blind. He came declaring, I am the truth, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth in a world that has no truth. 
in a world that doesn't know they want the truth. Jesus says, I'm the truth. Truth lived in perfect holiness and love. Truth lived in harmony of word and deed. Truth lived not only exposing our falsehood, but building a record of righteousness for us. This is the truth of God in flesh. But He's not only that. He's grace. He said, I'm truth and grace. Grace upon grace, full of grace, abundance of grace. Grace from sea to sea, land to sky, day to night. Truth without grace is not really truth. And grace without truth is not really grace. You need both. And Jesus perfectly embodies both. He's the truth that exposes our brokenness so that grace can do its work. Right? Jesus on the cross dying for our sins was exposing us. There's never been a greater exposure of our sin than the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, He's exposing this is who we are. We deserve the lashes. We deserve the crown of thorns. We deserve the Father's face turning away. Yet it's the flow of His blood flowing from His side that shows us grace abounds. It's the flow of blood that leaks down His face from the crown of thorns that shows us grace overflows. It's from the blood that speaks a better word, as Abel says, Right? It's, it's grace. Grace is the better word. Amazing grace. Dan Allender is an author and, and a counselor, and he, he wrote this uh, book about the Sabbath that I've been reading recently, and, and he has this incredible story that he, he gets from somebody else, and it's, it's about these French people who, who go to uh, this Bedouin desert people, and they bring them back to see the, the greatness of Paris, is what they thought. They thought they'd bring these people from this rural desert community where they'd never been outside of their space to come to, de- come to Paris and see their beautiful architecture. And so they take them around town and show them all these different sites, and they show them the Eiffel Tower. And, and he says, as they were going on this tour of the city of Paris, they're all kind of in this polite boredom. You know, like they're just shaking their head. They're, they're not really amazed. They're thinking, yeah, this is kind of cool. But then they take them to the countryside. And they take them to the countryside and, and they show them this waterfall that's flowing down. And he said, as, as soon as they saw the waterfall, they stopped and they were frozen in awe. They were just overwhelmed. They'd never seen anything like that in the desert they came from. They had never seen water that just continued to flow and flow and flow, and it never stopped. This is what he said when they saw it. He said they refused to leave, adamantly declaring that their French guide honored this by by requiring waiting, waiting for the end, knowing that the water could not last much longer They awaited the moment when God would grow weary of this madness, is what they said, when this wild extravagance would suddenly and finally exhaust itself. And it never did. It never stopped. It never exhausted. It just kept flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. The madness of the abundance. Listen, that is the madness of God's grace that it never stops. It just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. And you may wait and stop and see, is it going to stop now? It, it can't just keep going. No, it just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. And Jesus came to make that grace possible. Jesus came to both expose our brokenness, but also build our beauty 
to build us into a people who are overflowing with that same grace, that on the cross we see that beauty in action. Not to destroy us, but to love us. Not to condemn us, as Jesus said, but to save us, to redeem us, to heal us. Do you need the living word of Jesus today? As we close and continue to worship together, I mean, I I think every one of us, every one of us need his grace and his truth, both of them. And what flows from the scriptures is the heart of God where he says, I'm here, come to me. Come to me. He is spoken so that we might respond. God speaks so that we would not only know him, but that we would be close to him. And so as he invites you today, he invites you where you're at, where you're weary, where you're tired. Maybe you're full of bad thinking and bad behavior and the scriptures exposing all kinds of things in you. He says, come. Come. He keeps flowing. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your grace that is full of abundance. Thank you for the truth that is a firm foundation for us. It is such a glorious, incredible revelation of who you are. That we could dive deeper and mine further and and still not exhaust the truth of who you are. And so Lord, we pray that you would draw us near to you in that as you expose who we are and call us to know you and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray that we would find you in that as a God overflowing with love towards his children and that that would be what defines us and fills us with wonder. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.